Good morning. Uh, I am excited to dig in again this week to another tough question. We've been going through a tough question series uh, over the past several weeks, and it's been fun. I've really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed the opportunity to dig into these things as I've prepared. I uh, really enjoyed listening to Darren's message last week. Um, many of you will know that we had some technical difficulties there with uh, the service streaming. And so unfortunately, during the actual uh, Sunday morning time where we would typically be having our church service, the message didn't work. I got it up on Facebook shortly after that. But I know for many of you, um, you probably missed that message. And so I really, really strongly encourage you to find a way to listen to it. It was a wonderful, wonderful, hope-filled message on hell in the context of what we understand about who God is. And in many ways, it serves as a companion piece, a sister or a cousin message to the one that I'm going to be preaching today because the topics are similar. And so there is some overlap and and the two of them, I think, go nicely together. Uh, so encourage you to go find that and listen to that if you haven't. It's a, it's a very, very beautiful sermon. Some really, really good thoughts there from Darren. Uh, today, though, we are talking about assurance of salvation. Uh, and so you can see maybe how those two uh, connect with each other, uh, how the two themes are going to overlap a little bit, uh, but they are quite different. And, and assurance of salvation, this is by far, I would say, the most asked question. Now, there were lots of questions that came in with slightly different angles towards this, but sort of uh, I grouped them together and kind of lumped them into this assurance of salvation uh, topic. So some of the ones that came in, questions like, at what point does backsliding become a loss of salvation? Or is it really once saved, always saved? Or uh, can a baptized believer lose their salvation? Or is all sin covered by the blood of Christ? Or uh, is salvation predestined by God? Or is it really an individual's choice? Uh, or is the concept of praying someone into heaven valid? So lots of questions about this sort of thing. Uh, and each of these could be their own sermon. I'm not going to be able to get into the nuances of all of these questions here. I want to encourage you, as I have been throughout this series, that if there's something you want to dig into, if there's something you want to understand more about, if you feel like there were aspects of your question that weren't really touched on because there's limitations with time here, I just can't get into everything, that you'd like to explore a little bit more, please let me know. I'd love to sit down uh, and process these things a little bit more one-on-one. -on -one. I want for this to be a conversation starter, not a conversation ender. Uh, so this is uh, the topic for today, and it's obviously a significant topic in our hearts and minds, given how many people uh, asked questions about it. And that's not surprising. I mean, what could be more important than this? If we truly believe that God is real, and if we truly believe that there's an afterlife that we're going to where we're spending eternity, and that there is a heaven, and that there is a hell, and that the choices that we make on earth affect that decision, uh, then how could there be anything more important than understanding the answer to this question? Uh, are we assured of our salvation and what does that look like? And my guess is that many of you, uh, including myself certainly, have wrestled with this over the years. It's something that's kept you up at night. You know you've tossed and turned over this. You've second-guessed or you've doubted. Uh, I can think of many people from whom I've heard stories over the years uh, of of asking Jesus into your heart over and over and over again, maybe every night or even multiple times a day or every time you sin, doing this again and again because there is this fear of, of making a mistake or slipping up or somehow uh, ending up in hell. 
Did you hear my Siri go off there? Um, I remember being at camp uh, as a young kid and somebody brought up the concept of the unforgivable sin, uh, the blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin. And I was, I was convinced, I, I know what blaspheming against the Holy Spirit is, that's using the Lord's name in vain. So anytime I heard somebody say um, uh, Jesus or God in, in the context of, of a swear or an exclamation that wasn't obviously pointed at Jesus or God, um, I was convinced that they now had uh, damned themselves, that they were going to help because they had done this. I would watch TV or different things and I would hear this or I had friends who would say it and I was, I was um, anxious for their souls because I went, you've done something that you can never take back. Uh, so there's this confusion that exists because that, of course, uh, is not the unforgivable sin. It's not uh, recommended, uh, but, it is, but it is not something that God cannot overcome and has not overcome uh, with his sacrifice for us. Uh, but there is this fear that we have, and, and there are all sorts of kind of almost superstitions that exist um, and misinformation that exists about this. We think there's a spiritual switch that we might accidentally trigger, trigger or a breaker that we might trigger somehow that, that sends us somewhere, and we doom ourselves by doing the wrong thing. And, and even if we feel personally that we've got assurance of salvation, if we're settled and secure, we know people who are toying with that edge or who seem to be over that edge, people maybe who were one point at one point were Christians, uh, now aren't living that life. Or, or people who are Christians but believe something very, very different uh, than what we believe to a point where we go, okay, are they even in the same club anymore? Are they, even, are they making it in? Or people who have never been Christians, who are antagonistic towards the church or just indifferent towards the church. So what do we do about these people? And, and how do we feel about this? And what's the answer to where they are going? It's just a tough, tough question, and it's a scary question. And it can be a confusing question because even the Bible uh, seems to disagree with itself. You read in different places, um, uh, different passages that speak about salvation uh, or the path to God, and it feels like they are saying different things. Paul speaks strongly over and over and over again that it's faith alone, faith alone, faith alone, grace alone, faith alone that saves us. And then James comes in and says, well, if you're not doing good things then what's the point you're probably you're not saved if you're not if you're not acting out on on this if you're not uh, showing good works in what you're doing uh, and Jesus has some really shocking things to say about salvation one of them is the passage that Shelley read for us it's a very surprising passage uh, about what it looks like to be saved uh, and that's coming directly from the mouth of God and so uh, we're going to dig into this some of the things we aren't going to get into today because we just don't have time um, I'm not going to address really the issue of free will versus God's sovereignty, the idea of the elect that some are predestined to make it into heaven and others aren't. Uh, in some Christian circles, the theology is, is that, yeah, that some are predestined to get in, um, others are destined not to, and, and really have no control over that destiny. And I'm just going to say here that I land squarely on the side of believing that all of us have uh, access to God's gift of salvation. All of us have the free will to make that choice. Um, something I'm happy to talk about more if you want to sit down and dig into that. Uh, the other thing is that uh, we're not actually going to talk very much today about the way the gift of salvation was given. So, of course, that's the cornerstone to our faith. Uh, Jesus' perfect sacrifice, his life, death, and resurrection, paving the way for us to be in relationship with our Heavenly Father. The gift of the Holy Spirit that comes with that and our salvation through that. But that's not the topic today, not how the gift was um, bought, uh, but rather how we receive that gift and how we have the assurance 
or can have the assurance that we do in fact have it. Um, I'm trying to uh, give you a resource or two for each of the topics that we go through just so if you want to dig in a little further you can. A uh, book that I read kind of in preparation for this that I thought would be a valuable one if you're interested in sort of is just a straightforward kind of a simple walkthrough of salvation of what the Bible has to say about it. Uh, easy to read, well written, um, enjoyable to read. Uh, it's a book by J.D. Greer is his name, G-R-E-E-A-R, -E -E and it is called, uh, let me make sure I get this right, it's got a bit of a provocative title, it's called Stop Asking God Into Your Heart. It's available, uh, I'm sure in bookstores, but uh, certainly on Amazon um, it's available. So uh, Stop Asking God Into Your Heart by J.D. Greer. Good resource if you want uh, sort of just a solid foundational uh, book on what salvation looks like and assurance of salvation, those sorts of things. But what I want to do today, um, I'm not going to be able to give you a perfect concrete answer to every single aspect of this question, but I want to focus on three main principles that we can keep in mind and that hopefully will give us some security uh, or some stability or some foundation as we as we think about um, the details of this question. Uh, three truths that we can take to help us understand um, salvation and our relationship to it a little bit better. Uh, the first one that we're going to get into is this. Salvation is more than a moment or a feeling. So probably because this is such an important topic for us uh, and for Christians over the years, uh, because it's such an important thing to get right, uh, over the years we've seen different groups become very, very entrenched in one way of doing things or believing about things, um, end up using very, very specific language. Uh, this is a little bit before my time, but I certainly understand that that uh, there was a sense for a while of you needed to be a born-again believer. And if you were a believer, well, whatever. But are you a born-again believer? And, and there was a lot of um, weight on that specific phrasing, the idea of being born again. Uh, or some groups believe that there was a specific mode of baptism, right? There are churches that if you're if you're baptized through pouring and you enter this church, they'll go, well, you're not actually baptized, and so then you need to be dunked. And, uh, and so that becomes very, very important to people, or there's a very specific prayer that you need to pray, or these sorts of things. But one of the really interesting things in the Bible to me is when we look at Jesus, especially in the Gospels here, when we look at Jesus and the way that he interacts with the people around him and the parables that he tells and the discussions that he has uh, with his disciples and with uh, other people that he meets, when he's addressing this, how are you saved or how are you forgiven or how do you enter the kingdom of God, uh, it seems like almost every time he gives a bit of a different answer uh, or he gives different statements, certainly. So to make up this point, I want to just very quickly breeze through uh, some of the different things Jesus has to say about entering the kingdom of God. So uh, John 3, in John 3, we see the origins of the phrase uh, born again. So Nicodemus, uh, this uh, leader of the Pharisees, um, is speaking with Jesus, and Jesus calls Nicodemus to be born again. That's where this phrase comes from. That says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. And so you must be born again spiritually in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. In Luke 18, Jesus tells a rich ruler, asks how to get into the kingdom of heaven, he says that he has to sell everything he owns and give it to the poor. And this rich ruler actually goes away sad because that's too high an ask. It's too much. Uh, later, uh, one chapter later in Luke 19, 
uh, Jesus is visiting with Zacchaeus, uh, the tax collector. And Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give half my possessions away. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. So just a chapter earlier, he says, you have to give everything away. Now someone's giving half of their stuff away. Jesus says, that's enough. You're in. Uh, Matthew 18. Jesus says to his disciples that unless they become like little children, they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Matthew 25, that's that sheep and the goats passage that Jesus, or that uh, Shelley read for us. Uh, Jesus says, uh, it has to do with how you treat the poor. It has to do with how generous you are, about how you love your neighbor. Um, and in fact, apparently, uh, you can uh, love Jesus uh, by loving the people around you, even if you don't understand that's what you're doing. It's not about... Um, uh, what uh, what you think that you're doing. It's about those actions are actually loving Jesus whether you know it or not. Uh, and that's enough. Uh, in Mark, Jesus says that whoever wants to save their life is going to lose it. Whoever loses it for me will be saved. And he calls his disciples to pick up their crosses uh, and follow him. Uh, Mark 9, a chapter later, one of my favorite passages, this man, this father comes to Jesus with his demon-possessed child and says, Jesus, I need you to save this boy. People have tried to pray this demon out of him and he won't come. And Jesus says, you need to believe. And this man says, and it's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And to me, I just, uh, that speaks to my heart. That's how I feel so often. I think it's how many of us feel. I, I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Um, God, take me that. And, and, and Jesus says, that's enough. He says, that that is what you need uh, in order for your son to be healed uh, in order for this gift of healing in Matthew 10 we're told that the ones who are saved are the ones who endure till the end uh, and in John 8 there's this uh, another beautiful exchange between Jesus and this adulterous woman who he says for being stoned who he says uh, neither do I condemn you go and sin no more and it's significant because uh, of the order this comes in it's not go and sin no more so that I won't condemn you it's, I don't condemn you, period. Now, go and sin no more as a result. The, the forgiveness is front-loaded. So uh, lots of different sort of looks at what it means to be saved, what it means to enter into the kingdom of God. And, and, and we look at this and we go, so Jesus, why do you keep moving the goalposts? Why for every person in every situation does that answer seem to always be different? Verse by verse and chapter by chapter and person by person, uh, it doesn't seem to be consistent. The answer changes. So I think there's a few things that we can take from this. First of all, there is no one perfect formula or prayer or baptism or statement or chant or song uh, or list of actions that gets us saved. For those of us who call ourselves born-again Christians, it's just as legitimate to call ourselves sold-everything Christians or servant-to-all Christians or childlike Christians or condemnation-free Christians. Jesus talks about this in many, many different ways. There's no one magical process to crossing that bridge or to opening that door or to accepting that gift that Christ has given us. The second thing I think uh, this tells us is that salvation is that entering into God's kingdom uh, has much more to do with our hearts uh, than any external action. Um, I believe that the, the reason the answer kept changing is because the hearts of those individuals that Jesus was talking to had different issues. They had different things they needed to give up or let go of. They had different uh, things that they needed to be encouraged in. They had different things, different baggage, different journeys, different histories. And so for each of them, the process 
of allowing God to be ruler in their life, of believing in who Jesus was and who he came to be, was a different process. Uh, that heart preparation looked different. And so for each of us, it's going to look a little bit different, I imagine. Like Paul says in Romans 8, um, what we need to do is get to a place where we are led by the Spirit of God and are children of God. Um, that spirit that brings us into sonship with him and testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So this is the place that we're headed to and that journey is going to look different uh, for different people. Uh, the EMC uh, provided a curriculum that we run through with baptismal candidates um, and, and they have a section on salvation and, and they also highlight the fact that just like salvation isn't a very specific moment or a very specific um, process, it's also not a very specific uh, emotion. It's not about how we feel necessarily. So they say that salvation, if we think of salvation as a train, uh, where the engine of train is the truth, truth is revealed in scripture, and the rest of the train is attached to that truth and pulled along, uh, that's a picture of faith. So we put faith in truth, we hitch our faith to that engine, and we are joined to God through doing so, and that engine of truth uh, pulls us along. And the caboose of the train, the very last car, represents our emotional experience. So when we place our faith in the truth, when we hit ourselves to that engine, an emotional experience may or may not follow, but whether it does or does not, that has no impact on the rest of the train. The engine of truth is still running. Our faith still remains. Our life is still joined with God in salvation. Uh, whether or not that emotional experience comes with it, um, it's a good thing, the emotion that we feel sometimes, but it isn't the core of, of what it means to be saved. It's something that is along for the ride with the truth uh, of who God is uh, and with our faith that is connected to that. So the point is this. Salvation isn't about the right feeling or the right prayer or the right service or the right baptism or the right Bible knowledge. It's about heart posture. It's about repentance from our old ways, giving up what keeps us from God uh, and about belief in God to save us. Do you want to believe? Is the question. Are you able to say even, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief? Does your heart desire to believe? Do you desire that gift that God gives? Then the Bible is clear. If you declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, Paul says you'll be saved. That's it. Point number two. Salvation is about relationship. So, Another way that salvation has sometimes been misunderstood is that the only benefit to salvation really is our eternal destination. That salvation isn't so much about now. Uh, really what it is, it's a life insurance policy. We don't really think about it until it comes time to cash it in. Uh, but Jesus and the New Testament writers are explicitly clear over and over and over again that the kingdom, that salvation, that this new life that we enter into while it is realized and experienced in heaven in a significant and unique and distinct way, it begins here on earth. It's something that we step into here. And as we enter into that relationship, our lives begin to change. Ephesians 4.15 tells us that when we accept Christ's gift of salvation, then we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. That's what we're called to. That's what's expected when we enter into this relationship. 
Uh, Colossians 3, which Darren has often pointed to, and if memory serves, he did again last week, speaks powerfully about our new lives here and now in Christ Jesus, the ways in which we look different and act different and, and get dressed different in a spiritual sense in the mornings, the ways in which we look uh, different than we did before. Uh, in Titus 2, Paul is instructing this young pastor on how to uh, teach his church, and he's given spe specific direction for how people are supposed to behave. Uh, but as Paul finishes his thought, he reminds Titus, he says, The grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people, and we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. So that's our calling in the context of this relationship. Salvation isn't just a prayer that we say, and then we sit, and we wait. It's entering into a transformative relationship. Uh, it's interesting to note that the biblical word for faith is the same word as the biblical word for faithfulness. That Greek word is the same word. Having faith in, in the minds of, of the writers of the Bible and the, and the readers and the listeners in that original language, having faith is exactly the same as being faithful. The two were connected. A great way to think of this is like uh, a marriage, I think. When, and certainly the Bible uses marriage terminology often to talk about what it means to follow Jesus and be in relationship uh, with God. When Aaron and I got married, uh, we said vows to each other, we exchanged rings, we signed a document. Uh, we did these uh, sorts of ceremonial things, and it was a, it was a significant conversion experience uh, into a new type of relationship. Um, but then after that, uh, we could have technically chosen to just live the same way that we had before. To continue to live in separate houses, to keep separate bank accounts, to live separate lives, to change nothing about our day-to-day -day life. But that would have been uh, crazy. We would have technically still been married. We would have had had the assurance of that certificate we would have we would have technically and in a legal sense still had that marriage relationship um, but it would have been completely unnatural it only really makes sense it's only natural if there's an ongoing building relationship that occurs if we move in together and we share things and we grow closer and we serve each other uh, Ephesians 2 reminds us that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith not for ourselves it is a gift of God uh, not by works so that no one can boast. Um, so salvation is accomplished fully and completely through God. It's not our own doing. But Paul continues this thought. He says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Uh, one writer, one uh, commentator on this said this way, We are God's works of art. But not art that sits still like a sculpture, more like art that moves, like a dance. The very fact that we can participate in this glorious reality, faithfully living out the faith we have placed in Christ, is pure grace. Let's not be the kind of bride who only gets married because we want the security of a celestial sugar daddy, but who have no intention of being engaged in a loving and faithful marriage. 
Who wants to spend the rest of their lives in a loveless marriage with a rich husband? Instead, let us see our greatest reward, our riches and our security, as the love that we get to live out every day in partnership with our heavenly husband who loves us and gave himself for us. So first, salvation is more than just a moment or a feeling. Second, salvation is a relationship. Uh, and third is this. God loves you and he wants you uh, to be saved. Salvation is not a trick question. As we talk about salvation, as we talk about the assurances that we have, maybe it feels like I've muddied the waters. It's, it's, I've, I've been saying it's not just about the perfect prayer or a moment. It's about a lifelong relationship. It's about a living, breathing relationship with God. And maybe for some of you, that actually only really dredges up the anxiety or the uncertainty. If I can't rely on that moment from years ago, if that prayer that I said wasn't this punched ticket that, that guarantees me into heaven no matter what, then now suddenly I'm on shaky ground again. Uh, but the simple truth um, that this is, the simple truth that we're talking about is key in understanding our relationship with God. God loves you. He loves you. And he wants you in heaven. He wants you to be saved. Uh, every year for the past few years, uh, the pastors, Darren and Pearl, Aaron and me, and over the years, uh, Mike and Alyssa as well, have done an evening out uh, at some point, kind of a, a team building uh, date night. And traditionally what we've done is we've done an escape room. Now, I don't know how many of you have done escape rooms uh, or how familiar you are with them. Um, we do them often. They're tons of fun. Aaron and I probably are well into the double digits in terms of how many escape rooms we've done. We look for excuses to go and do them with groups uh, because we really, really uh, like them. But the concept of an escape room is that you're thrown into some room with some elaborate backstory. You're an astronaut on a planet stranded in your ship, which is running out of air. And in 60 minutes, the air is going to be gone. You got to figure out how to get the ship launched or you're a wizard in some dungeon somewhere trying to, I don't know what. There are these crazy stories that, that get told uh, and, and always you have an hour before something bad happens and you've got to get out of this room. You have to there's these elaborate traps and hidden magnets and and uh, numbers and, and, and formulas and riddles and you have to put the right statue on the right pedestal and multiply the seven numbers in the room to figure out which chess piece goes in the dragon's mouth. And it's just this sort of crazy situation, this elaborate game in most of those rooms uh, that exist uh, have a less than 50% pass rate, which means that most of the people who start in the room don't escape within 60 minutes. Everything inside is designed to confuse. Nothing is what it seems is first. Everything's got a hidden meaning. Um, or a, a totally different example, I still have flashbacks to a test that I wrote uh, in junior high. I don't know if any of you have had this experience. It was it was horrible. Uh, it was one of the first tests that I did on those, on those uh, bubble sheets. You remember the bubble sheets? Um, I assume bubble sheets are still a thing. Uh, but you you have uh, you have your your test and then you have this separate sheet with a b c d e f and then just kind of rows of numbers and and you have to look at your question and then you shade in the right bubble uh, on the sheet and I was blazing through this thing it was an easy it was an easy test I figured and I wasn't paying very much attention to the details and I missed a 
question, skipped a question early on. And then for the rest of the test, all of my answers were one line off of the sheet. And I, and, and I handed it in confident. I knew I had done well. And then shortly after, I get my test results back. And I'd failed. I'd failed uh, by a wide margin. Every answer was on the wrong line. And so each question over and over again was a failure, unless I was lucky enough to have two in a row that were the same. I, I tried to do the right thing. I actually knew what I was supposed to do, but I made one mistake and it had this ripple effect through the test and the mark came back and I hadn't made it. And, and sometimes we can feel like salvation is a test like that or an escape room, something that there are hoops that we have to jump through and there are secret things that we need to do. And that even if we want to be saved, even if we're trying to do the right thing, if we accidentally slip up or if we say the wrong thing, or if we somehow commit the unforgivable sin, or if we use the wrong credit card or the wrong piece of technology. I mean, I was terrified of the mark of the beast uh, when I was young. What, what could this mark of the beast be and how could I avoid it? Uh, and, 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 and when we start to treat religion like we're in an Indiana Jones movie trying to avoid booby traps uh, that are placed throughout this room and we're, and, we're, and we're looking to get tricked, and where's, this, where's the double meaning here? Uh, then we're missing the boat of what God has called us to. Not a spirit of fear, uh, but of power and love and a sound mind. Not a spirit of fear because perfect love drives out fear, casts out fear. And God loves us perfectly. Not only that, the Bible is clear that God wants us in heaven. He desires that we get this right. He's giving us every opportunity imaginable to get it right. First uh, Timothy 2 verse 4 tells us that God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, 2 Peter 3 9, beautiful verse, says that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But God wants all of us in heaven. Philippians 2 uh, verses 9 to 11 remind us that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, Matthew tells us, um, speaking the words of Jesus himself, uh, Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if, he asks, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, we'll give him a snake. So if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good, good things to those who ask him? So we have a Father in heaven who loves us, who's standing by the door, ready to open it, who wants his children to come home no matter what we've done, no matter what we've believed, no matter how we've messed up. It's not some trick question that we have to get right. The answer is simple. The door is open. The price has been paid. And God is inviting us through with open arms. He wants us in heaven. He has sacrificed everything for us. He has pursued us. He has forgiven us. He has grace for us. The gift is there. And we're not going to miss it by mistake. If we believe, salvation is here. We're forgiven. We're born again. And we are called to live a life that shows it. So, as we close, I can feel uh, your thoughts, I think. Maybe this has given you some extra foundation or understanding to our own salvation. I hope it's 
giving you some context for how you could have assurance of faith um, that you've picked up something new or different or seen something from a new angle here. Uh, but what about those we love? Um, most of the questions that came in uh, that were submitted had that sort of a direction to them. It wasn't so much about, am I okay? It was about what are the, about the people that I love? What about the people around me? What about the people that I work with? What about the people in my family? What about my friends? How can I know if they're okay? At what point have they crossed a line that I need to be worried about? Um, most of the questions came with that. And I suspect many of us who didn't ask that question uh, specifically when, uh, when this uh, tough questions thing was open, have that question in our hearts. What about the people in my life who are believing differently? Um, who are acting differently, who, who appear to have turned their back on this. Uh, what about those I love? I want nothing more than to tell you that they're fine. That I can tell you with certainty that no matter the situation, no matter where they're at, it's good. They're okay. They're safe. I can't. The Bible speaks in some beautiful ways uh, about God wanting all to be saved. We talked about some of those. One of the most powerful ones, one of the strongest ones, is in Romans. Um, Romans talks about God as the new Adam. In Romans 5, it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so, also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Hmm. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many, same word, will be made righteous. Which sounds pretty universal, doesn't it? And maybe it's true. Maybe that's the final answer. I, I hope. I hope that it is. I, I want that to be true. And it's within the realm of possibility that it could be, that it may be. But I can't say to you that I know it's that simple. I have people in my life. I have people who are alive in my life. I have people who have passed away in my life who I wish I could answer clearly and confidently and, and with total assurance where they are. Uh, or where they are going. And I don't know. I, I just don't. But, above all, something that calms my heart, that gives me assurance, uh, is, is to dwell on and think about the character of God, about who God is, about who we see God to be. Darren broke it down last week. God is holy and God is just. Uh, and he is all and is in all. And he understands our hearts and minds. And he understands our contexts. He understands our motivations. He understands our limitations. He understands our limited field of view. Uh, and above all, God is love. Not that God is simply loving. God is love. He is characterized by, identified by, defined by love. And this God who is love. And this God, who is love, who is gracious beyond compare, who so loved us that he sent Jesus, who so loved the world that he sent Jesus, is not going to let that gift 
go to waste. He is going to take every opportunity to give that gift to us that he can. He desires that all will be saved. And I can say with absolute confidence that when we stand before him, when we have a chance to see face to face, when we know fully, even as we are fully known, that the answer God gives to this question, that the logic behind the answer of salvation is going to make perfect sense and going to be perfectly good. It's going to align perfectly with his loving and gracious and holy character. And as much as I don't know, and as much as I can't grasp it, and as much as I don't get it, uh, and as much as we're limited here on earth, if we get to heaven and everyone is there from, from Hitler on up, I know without a shadow of a doubt that we will celebrate and say this is good and perfect and nothing could have been better than this answer to the question. And if there is another answer, when we hear and understand, we will celebrate and say this is good and perfect and nothing could have been better than this. Because it will be, no matter the answer, our Father God, our good Father who loves us, who created us, who knows us better than we know ourselves, who died for the whole world is making the final call and there could be no one better to make that call and so we love and we share the life that is in us with those we love and we pray and we trust in the Lord with all our hearts and lean not on our own understandings in closing I want to read to you uh, from Hebrews Hebrews chapter 10 I'll start in verse 19 Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Amen.